Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast, where we're talking all things film and screen culture. We record on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and we acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to our first podcast for the year, back after a short hiatus due to COVID. My name is Alexia Kanis, I'm a writer and academic, and in today's show I'll be joined by our wonderful co-hosts, writer, academic, programmer Kirsten Stevens, and cinema and TV scholar Joemi Baker, and we'll also be hearing from some special guests. In this episode, we're taking a look at feminists on screen, with a look at Amy Poehler's film Moxie, as well as two documentaries looking at the women's liberation movement, Joanna Demetrakis's 2018 documentary, Feminists, What Were They Thinking?, and Catherine Dwyer's 2020 documentary, Brazen Hussies. Later, Censors of Cinema's Stuart Richards talks to David O'Donnell about his 2020 film, Under My Skin, and Kirsten speaks with Censors editor Michelle Carey and RMIT, The Capitals, Gita Lobenstein about their retrospective program for Melbourne Design Week, Past Futures. We also have a postcard from Masha Peche from the annual Retrosex event in Ljubljana. And to wrap things up, we'll end with our recommendations on what we've been watching. Let's get on with the show. On March 3, Amy Poehler's film Moxie landed on Netflix. The film follows the feminist awakening of 16-year-old Vivian Hadley Robinson as she confronts the misogynistic microaggressions and not-so-micro-antagonisms that plague her school. After discovering her mother's polars, suitcase of early 90s right girl zines and feminist activist material, Vivian is inspired to start her own zine to call out the toxic culture. What unfolds is a feminist revolution, complete with Bikini Kill soundtrack, Patches and Teen Angst. Polar's film comes as we hit another peak for a growing awareness of feminist issues, calls for equality and a stop to violence against women. Join me, what did you think of Polar's film? Well, I watched Moxie with my teenage daughter and she definitely recognised all the teen tropes that this film pushes to extremes, both for comedic and dramatic effect. And it was interesting watching it with a teen because it was quite an interactive experience, lots of laughing and talking back at the screen. But there were also moments when I had to pause the film and explain some 1990s context, such as, Mm. what's a zine? And I think this brings up an interesting question around who this film is targeted at. Who's the audience? Because it got really mixed reviews, and I'm wondering if that's partly because of that uncertainty. Is it an Amy Poehler vehicle for people around her age who want to nostalgically revisit the 90s sort of riot girl culture? Or is it a teen flick? And I think depending on what the answer is to that, you could have quite different reactions to this film. What did you think? Um, That's really interesting that you uh, had the opportunity to watch this film with your teen daughter, I think, join me. Um, Did your daughter... um, experience the film as a teen film, do you think? Absolutely. Um, She'd certainly been watching that Netflix suite uh, of teen films that they've been heavily investing in in recent years. And so while I'd had tried to give her a little bit of 80s and 90s uh, teen film background, made her watch Clueless and uh, Ferris Bueller and a few other shows like that, she was very much coming at it from that Netflix context. Um, So while some of the reviewers took issue with the fact that the characters are cliches, she recognised those stereotypes, she recognised those cinematic tropes, um, that they were being deliberately used to call out the kind of toxic undercurrent that was informing those stereotypes. I think it's really interesting that we have this idea of a divided kind of audience for this film. I mean, I definitely fit that nostalgic category and there were bits of it that I was going, yeah, the young people should know about Kathleen Hanna and Bikini Kill and really loving that aspect of it. But, you know, watching it um, not with a teenager in the room, I was really curious to know whether or not this version of feminism that they're projecting on the um, film is the one that's really going to inspire that next generation of women to, you know, as they did, you know, stage walkouts and rallies and um, be as impassioned as they are in this film. I think that's a really good point, Kirsten. There's a sense um, that the film is trying to teach younger audiences about what feminism is, um, maybe about what it was 
in the past, but also kind of how to do it. And it, it sort of has a, a kind of a didactic um, sort of focus in terms of uh, demonstrating how to do feminism. Um, but it's a particular kind of feminism, as we've as we've pointed out. It's that kind of 90s right girl fen- feminism, um, which is not such a bad thing, I don't think. You know, like, great, more bikini kill all around, <laughs> I reckon. Um, but it does have that very kind of, you know, it's like lessons in how to do it, um, which I found quite interesting. And I wondered how that would go down for younger audiences, like if it would be inspiring or if it would be, if it would feel didactic. And I think you hit on possibly what is my biggest criticism of the film in pointing out that uh, didactic kind of approach that it takes, which is it's trying to teach how to do feminism, but it's trying to teach it. I mean, I guess it's commendable. It's trying to teach it in a way that's aware to a lot of the problems that feminist movements in the past have had. But I always feel this film is trying to do too much in trying to be incredibly woke feminist um, and trying to be as inclusive as possible, but in a way that I don't think they quite pull off. What did you think about this, Jomi? Yeah, I think particularly by the end of the film where we wrap up with a series of literal speeches uh, is kind of indicative of the problems this film has because it's trying to cover so many different grounds and trying to be inclusive, but in a very cursory way. Um, so, I mean, I was talking about that Netflix sort of suite of teen films and if you look at their programming they are trying to be more inclusive and diverse in their uh, casting of protagonists Um, and here in this film we have some authentic casting with a disabled character Meg played by Emily Hopper and trans character CJ played by Josie Tota but those characters exist primarily to voice their specific discrimination and then they kind of disappear Um, And I think we could say that for some of the other characters, such as the key instigator here, uh, Lucy, played by Alicia Pasquale-Pena, who gets, you know, this this whole narrative going and then kind of disappears by the end. So I'm wondering, you know, whether it is trying to cover too much and ends up a ends up siding with a particular type of middle class white feminism that was critiqued from that very era. Definitely. I think that's a really good point. And I do wonder if it's partly to do with the film's um, use of and kind of um, dedication to the teen genre, because the teen genre is has always been rife with types, right? You know, you have all these different stereotypes within the, within the school and they perform different functions and they set off different patterns of action and they kind of do their duty and then they sort of disappear. And I feel that this film is a little bit um, weighed down by its kind of Um, allegiance to the teen genre in some ways Um, the bit that really kind of made me think "Mm, I'm not sure if this works is when we get to the end and you have that kind of strange moment where as you say there's all these speeches but then it has to kind of resolve itself in a teen film way and so there's the reunion of the the young couple and all that sort of thing which just happens so quickly after all these really intense speeches about um, you know with a rape allegation and all this sort of thing and then it sort of quickly goes sort of tries to wrap everything up um, and it feels a little bit strange. It feels like it's, you know, it's like it's just remembered it has to do that thing as well. Um, Which I think is really interesting because this is also quite a long film. So that sort of pacing at the end did feel a little bit off. As you say, you have very serious allegations and then this idea that, oh, but if we all come together, we can solve everything. Um, which is a nice sentiment, but it did mean that yeah, that ending felt very rushed to me as well, um, which at the end of what was a two-hour um, plus film, it, you know, it's it was interesting that we kind of got to that point where all of that was done so quickly at the end. Yeah, it's that feeling of, like, we have to get to this point because it's a Hollywood teen film, right? So we better just, like, get there <laughs> in, in a kind of reasonable running time. Uh, there's an interesting um, point in the film where Claudia, the best friend played by Lauren Tsai, calls out the white feminism of her best friend um, and says, well, actually, maybe as an Asian American, I can do feminism differently. And that's a really interesting point. But again, it's quite hurried. And I think if we look at the Netflix suite more broadly, they do a better job of that by just having different films for different protagonists where they get a bit more time to tease out what feminism might look like for different kinds of young women. 
Which is where we can think of the the streaming format, as you say, the Netflix suite and this idea of its place now as a a mass-producing studio in many regards. But also um, the possibility of television as a format for this film that might have given a little bit more space to some of these characters. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. Um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be great to see this kind of expanded and um, into a series where there's room to kind of really spend time with all those different characters and those different experiences. Um, I think that's partly an issue about the moment that we find ourselves in with the revival of feminism, of wanting to bring a new generation into feminism. And this is kind of the homework that they need to do first, to try and familiarise a new generation with the history of feminism before that we can move on, sorry, so that we don't have to cover the whole of Feminism 101 in every single individual film. Speaking of not trying to cover all of these topics in individual films, we have two other documentaries that seem to sit really nicely around this moment of Moxie, even though they've come out in 2018 and 2020, respectively. So these are the two documentaries, the one by Joanna Demetrakis, Uh, from 2018 called Feminists What Were They Thinking and Catherine Dwyer's 2020 film uh, Brazen Hussies, both of which look back to second wave feminism in the US and Australia respectively to look at what really were the activists and the women who kicked off um, second wave feminism and what were both the really amazing strengths and achievements of these periods, as well as some of those criticisms that we we touched on earlier. Um, So thinking about Demetrakis' film, uh, Alexia, what did you think of that documentary? I really enjoyed this film. um, And I I really enjoyed thinking, like sort of watching um, this alongside Brazen Hussies as well, because they they have so much in common in, in some ways, and yet they're quite different in other ways. So they've, you know, there's lots of points of comparison. And I think, um, you know, really productive kind of comparison to be done around the films. But the thing that I really liked about Demetrakis's film um, was the fact that it had that focus around the art produced in the period by these um, feminist activists. Um, and so it kind of, uh, photography is what the film, what gives the film its shape, I suppose. Um, and I thought that was really, really wonderful. And I loved seeing all, not only the photographs, but hearing all the um, the people whose portraits exist in this in this book um, kind of come to life um, and I thought that was a really interesting and very productive structure um, and that was actually to bring uh, Brazen Hussies in um, that was what I also liked about Brazen Hussies the sense that you got um, some insight into the art produced um, during this moment although I feel in relation to Demetrakis's film um, Brazen Hussies had less of that and spent less time with that kind of activist activity and I sort of felt like I wanted to see more of that and more of what happened in Australia around what was produced in in artistic contexts um but how did the others how did you feel I I really love that this seems to be a really interesting connection between these three films if we um also loop back in Moxie is the idea of the feminist aesthetic and feminist art and that as this powerful um aspect of both how these films engage with feminism but also um just that sort of feature of what women were doing how about you Jomi? well it's interesting thinking about that because i suppose my only criticism of these films is that it would have been nice to see some of that aesthetic being translated into the filmmaking choices themselves um, so that the form of the documentaries and the subject kind of segued in, in some way. I agree. That would have been um, fantastic. And, I mean, I understand um, why documentaries take the shape that they do. For, so, for instance, in the in the case of Brazen Hussies, um, there was the theatrical release version and then that shorter version made for ABC TV or iView. Um, and so there's a kind of a televisual quality to the to the film, which I think is important because it has to kind of play on TV and play well on television. Um, but I agree, you you feel that 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 the aesthetic that is kind of unearthed through through this um, historical or archival footage, you know, could be kind of brought through to the film form itself, and and for the the documentary form itself to be kind of dynamized by this feminist aesthetic, um, instead of the documentary just being about it or you know kind of showing it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely loved watching Brazen Hussies, and as 
an Australian woman, it was amazing to hear some of those stories that really are not widely known. Um, you know, even hearing more detail about for those international listeners um, back in the um, 60s, women could not be in the public bar area of pubs. They had to be in the ladies lounge and hearing about the protests that the women chaining themselves to the public bar. All of that's amazing knowledge that this documentary shares and its use of archival footage um, and being able to talk to some of the activists that were really pivotal. That was all really amazing, but it is very much about trying to teach and to communicate. Again, a little bit like um, Moxie, where I feel we're kind of in this moment where we're getting a lot of visibility of feminist stories, but there seems to be this real urge that, oh, the young people don't know about feminism. We need to tell them about feminism rather than sort of going into that more um, aesthetic or essay or uh, less didactic forms of communicating feminist uh, aesthetics. I think that's right, Kirsten. Um, and I think in in that sense, Brazen Hussies is such a successful film in that way because it really does teach you about this whole movement that, you know, as an Australian woman myself, I did not know about and I feel kind of ashamed about, but really glad that I now have, have had this insight um, into, into all those um, things that happened and all that um, activism that happened in Australia. Um, so in that sense, the films have a very specific project and, you know, it is not to... Um, make a film about feminist art right maybe that's the next step maybe these are really important first steps that are happening in this moment and that's what kind of draws these films together in lots of ways yeah and i think that's reflected in the title feminist what were they thinking which seems a rather clunky title but i think speaks to that issue of what are we going to do with this term feminism? This idea of kind of reclaiming a history of feminism, but also that that identity, that title itself. So what did they mean by it back then? And what might it mean for us moving forward as well? So all of these... Uh, films are available for streaming in different parts of the world. Uh, we find Moxie and Feminist What Were They Thinking up on Netflix and Brazen Hussies is available through ABC iview here in Australia. There's so much more we can say about these films so if you want to take this conversation further share your thoughts via our socials you'll find us at facebook.com slash senses of cinema on twitter at senses of cinema and instagram at the senses of cinema. Next up, Stuart Richards from Senses of Cinema talks with David O'Donnell, writer and director of the non-binary 2020 film Under My Skin. So thank you, David, for agreeing to appear on the Senses of Cinema podcast. In your film Under My Skin, uh, we have Denny, who is a free spirit and artist, uh, falling for Ryan a straight-laced lawyer, uh, both played by Liv Hewson and Alex Russell, respectively. Um, when Danny questions uh, their gender, uh, their relationship is tested. Um, what, uh, what inspired you to make this film? Um, so loosely, uh, my ex-partner yep. um, coming out as trans. That, so that was about eight years ago. Um, so they're a producer on this film. Um, you know, the, the trans community has, um, has developed and, and um, you know, I, I think is a little more prominent now, um, but, um, you know, probably at that time it was, and, and still would be, but perhaps even more so at that time, it was, um, I think, a big step for them to take and, um, challenging step and the scary step. Um, so that that was kind of the seed of the film, um, and it, it's not based on a true story. It's kind of where it started from, you know, that that experience. What's the significance of the title uh, for your film, Under My Skin? So there's a couple. I guess a couple of dynamics. One thing is. Um, you know, obviously the experience of being something which perhaps is not represented um, by the exterior, um, you know, the, the experience that probably anyone can relate to of um, 
the interior world not being represented or not being, uh, yeah, not being represented by the exterior. So it, it probably probably comes from there. One thing that I think is fascinating about the film is that we have Liv Hewson playing Denny at the, the beginning of the film, but as the narrative yeah. progresses, we have a few performers playing that role. Uh, yeah. Could you talk about uh, the decision behind that um, and how you sourced those various performers? Yeah, so it was a big choice. Um, so it was Rainan's suggestion um, that we explore this um, this ensemble cast for playing this one character. Um, you know, a couple of films have done it before. There's the Bob Dylan film about 15 years ago. And there was a Todd Solence film about 20 years ago. Um, but it's, you know, it's not a common convention. Mm. Um, so we started to explore that and what each chapter would mean. Um, but um, yeah, so, so we started to explore this idea and, and I think both agreed that it was really exciting and interesting and more than anything, anything else, just very right. You know, Ronan really felt that this was a good choice for this story. Um, and I agree. Well, first of all, I, I went to the investors and said, Hey, we want to do this. And they said, no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. um, and we said, yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> And then, yeah, the, the the question became, okay, you know, can we find, well, how do we go about finding these four non-binary actors? Um, and so then that came to our contacts and then just in casting. Um, so two of the two of the roles, so uh, Bobby Salvo-Menuez, who's also quite a, an experienced actor, um, was in Nocturnal Animals, uh, started in I Love Dick and Transparent was recently in Euphoria. Um, so with Liv and Bobby, you know, they were sort of known non-binary actors. Um, and then Lex and Chloe were brand new. You know, this was their first feature film. Um, and so we assembled this cast and found these four actors and there were you know, actually many other great actors out there, great, great non-binary actors, of course. Um, and, um, but yeah, we're exploring different things. At one point, there was the, you know, we made uh, an offer to someone, scheduling didn't work out, but there was one point where, you know, we're going to work with a non-binary actor who was, you know, who had been assigned male at birth and, um, so we explored some different options, but this is ultimately where we ended up. And uh, it was a bit of a process in casting, but the talent is there. Are there further challenges um, in casting uh, non-professional or newer actors or performers uh, than going through a traditional casting process? Uh, we still use the traditional casting process as far as auditions and so forth. It's just that, you know, they, they were actors. Um, they were just newer actors and hadn't done as much, but the talent was there. They showed that, you know, they showed they had it in the audition process. What was the process in consulting or engaging with uh, the trans and gender diverse community in preparing and producing the film? Obviously, Rainin was the sort of first, um, first creative input um, as the creative producer. Um, and then um, we worked with Glad. Um, I'm forgetting his name now, but uh, we, we worked with a trans guy at Glad, a couple of other folks consulted. Um, and then just to be honest, just in the process of making the film, you know, we made this entire film in 15 days. So it was run and gun and 
yeah. because we were sort of so limited on budget, um, we didn't have much of a rehearsal process. It was really just a sort of table read and then we're going to have to find it on the floor. Mm. Um, but it, everything was always open. So there would be times where, you know, maybe Liv would feel that, no, this, this line isn't sitting. Yeah. And so it would just be like, okay, cool. You know, what, what feels right for you in this moment? So, so that was always open or times uh, that Bobby suggested a, an adjustment for a scene or, you know, so it, it was, the floor was always open. I mean, I think it's always good to keep things open, keep the script mm. sort of open. That's the way I work, you know, to be able to explore something and find something in the moment. Yeah. Um, but in this case, obviously even more so, um, and so uh, the, the precedent was set that, okay, you know, let, let's keep things open and, and, and keep the, um, keep, keep sort of any feedback flowing. Would you have any advice for other filmmakers who are about to begin their journey on making a micro budget feature? Because uh, certainly uh, that takes a lot of innovation to, to pull that off. Uh, my first piece of advice is don't do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, nah. um, yeah, look, if you want to, if you, you know, I, I think the key thing is you have to be ridiculously passionate. Yeah. Um, the amount of the thousands and thousands of hours that you're putting in, um, you know, and it, it's, it's a big endeavor. Um, it's gonna be, it's a marathon, you know, and, and there's thousands of challenges that come up along the way. So you've just got to keep going, keep going, keep going. I, I think the first thing would just be, you know, you, you're gonna to have to rely on your passion um, heavily yeah. because the amount of energy that you're going to have to, that, that is going to be called on, like in the lead up to making this film in pre-production, there's probably four or five months where I had four hours sleep a night. Yeah. Um, you know, you, it's, it's sort of nonstop. And then otherwise you gotta, you know, the script's got to be in the right place. Um, not that it has to be perfect and this script was not, but you know, you've got to make sure, make, make, you know, before the sort of storm starts when you're on set and everything is moving, when you have that time to get the script right, you got to get the script right. You've got to, you've got to put it through, you've got to get feedback from the right people. You've got to get, um, you know, you've got to get that critical feedback from the right people. And there's a balance um, that you, as a filmmaker, you as a writer must find and what I see in sort of maybe helping out other folks is that some people are too resistant to feedback. And so they fight against feedback and they're gonna hold on to ideas that are going to uh, limit the project. Mm -hmm. And I look at it and I see a project get made and I say, hey, we needed to change that and it wrecked your project. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the other side where some people are too open to feedback and um, and their project just gets sort of knocked all over the place um, because there's random bits of feedback and there's not that sort of integrating spine. So I think developing the script, you know, really putting it through the ringer and, and um, getting the best ideas possible, being open to whatever new ideas, you know, um, and then, you know, finding that balance between being open to ideas, but not just being sort of a gaping hole where you change with any direction of any wind. You, know? yeah. you have to have some sense of where you're going. That's something that I think definitely uh, would help a lot of student filmmakers as well. That is a continual thing that as a filmmaker or as a, um, or as a writer, you, you're gonna be continually contending with that, that, you know, if you're white, like you might just be a genius auteur and you've got it all yourself. 
Um, and if so, good luck. Fantastic. But most likely, a lot of your great work is going to be assisted by trusted development people or yep. trusted collaborators. And that's certainly the case for me. Mm. So this is a co-venture between America and Australia. Um, yep. Uh, how did you go about the process of navigating that? Um, were there any unique challenges to uh, um, engaging with funders from different countries? Yeah. I mean, one of the drawbacks was that, um, you know, we couldn't get any funding from um, Screen Australia or anything like that because it wasn't shot in Australia. Yeah. Um, much of the post was done in Australia and huge amount of the crew and cast were Australian. Um, Liv and Alex are Australian. But um, I did apply for some, some money at one point in post from Screen Australia, but I didn't get it. Uh, but basically, so that is one challenge. You, you know, this film, um, we probably pulled, um, I mean, I'll just tell you, but this film was made, uh, well, I'll be general. I'll say it's under 200,000 bucks. Um, but incredible producing a feature film for under that price that is incredible yeah yeah so that tells you something about the amount of producing that went into it mm. um because essentially what that means is a you have to get a tremendous amount of favors um you have to sell it to a tremendous amount of people get them on board get them enthused with the story and just that hey look you know we're, we're, this is a passion project. There's a group of us, we're doing this. We'd love your help, you know, can, so, so that sort of in whatever direction that was kind of the approach we took. There are times when your creative choices are limited because you have the budget that you have. So you're trying to just sort of bend the things, the options that you have available yeah. into what you, into the story. Sometimes, funnily enough, you know, people say, oh, well, that was an interesting choice that you made. And I'm thinking, well, that was actually the only choice I had. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, you know, so, so there were some advantages of making it over here in that um, there was some, there were some contacts that we had that we sort of um, were able to pull and as far as camera packages and things like that. And just, there really is a lot of crew in LA. Um, and then it also, um, we did think as far as the non-binary folks and finding those four actors, um, thought it was gonna be easy to do here. Mm. Um, and my final question um, is, uh, how did the production and um, I, I guess, uh, engaging with the festival sector, um, yeah. How was that impacted by COVID? Yeah, it, it's been a difficult time. So yeah. um, festivals are just starting to sort of come back to life now. Um, a lot of festivals were cancelled or sort of made virtual. And so we had to decide, okay, what are we going to do? Are we, do we want to wait or do we want to go virtual? So ultimately, we've started to screen the film in recent months. Um, it was our first in cinema screening um, a few weeks ago at the Mardi Gras Film Festival. Congratulations. Yeah, cheers. So that was that was lovely because, yeah, you know, it was a, just to make sure that we got it into a theatre mm -hmm. and the fact that it got a great response and also just seeing a theatre full of people was strange. You know, right now I'm here in LA and so you can barely see three people together seeing yeah. a whole cinema together. Was yeah, that must have been surreal so bizarre feels like a different world you know? yeah so it's it's all sort of coming together now and we're sort of negotiating that it certainly wasn't the festival run that we expected you know how it all panned out but um yeah we're sort of making it happen and finding the upsides in this version of events Past Futures, Dystopias, Utopias and Back to Futurism on Screen is a film program screening from March 26th to April 1st at the Capitol as part of Melbourne Design Week. 
The program looks back at how cinema in the past has imagined our future, bringing together films including Fritz Lang's Metropolis, Richard Fleischer's Soylent Green, the feminist dystopias of Susan Lambert's On Guard and Volker Schlondhoff's uh, The Handmaid's Tale, as well as the popular techno futures of Spike Jones's Her and Andrew Nichols' Gadiger, among many others. As the curator's statement accompanying the program describes these imagined dystopias and utopias have inspired cinephiles and cinema goers over the past century, worming their way into our collective consciousness and coloring how we continue to imagine the future on screen and beyond. These are films that influence how we think about the future and how we continue to design it into the now. I'm thrilled to be joined by co-curators, Michelle Carey and Gita Lobenstein, who are responsible for putting this uh, wonderful selection of films together. Michelle, as listeners might know, is one of our esteemed editors at Senses of Cinema. She is also a member of the selection committee at the Director's Fortnight at Cannes, programmer at the International Film Festival Rotterdam, and a program advisor for the New York Film Festival. Gita is the creative producer at the Capitol at RMIT University. She has also worked as a communications specialist and creative events producer with the Melbourne International Film Festival, Toronto International Film Festival and the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, among many other places. So welcome, Michelle and Gita. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> so Past Futures looks like a really interesting program of films. Can you tell me a bit more about the background to this program and how did this series come about? What inspired this interest in past futures? So RMIT is um, a partner of the NGV and we, as a university, RMIT um, often has a large component of events happening at Melbourne Design Week. This was the first year, well, last year was supposed to be the first year, but this year was the first year that the capital um, was able to, because of our reopening in 2019, was able to put together um, a sole program dedicated to Melbourne Design Week. And the Past Futures concept came out of a response to this year's Melbourne Design Week theme, which is design the world you want. Um, I was interested in thinking quite structurally and formally about that provocation, design the world you want, as it relates to the screen specifically. And quite literally, like, how do we design what we see on screen? Like, what faces and bodies do we see? What diversity, what lifestyles, you know, representation, vision can be really effective. And so what can we put on screen that redesigns a world we want to see? And then um, as I brought Michelle in to co-curate this with me, we, we really, like, honed down on a few concepts. And the one that won out was imagining the future from the past. So what was the world that filmmakers or screenwriters were designing in the past for the future? And now that that future is now, has that past future come true or has it been disproved? And of course, then we had all the utopian and dystopian visions to choose from of which there were many, 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 many on the long list. And we narrowed it down into 10 that um, we thought in some way canvassed, you know, a good survey of the ideas that we're interested in. So, um, you know, climate futures, relationship futures, techno technological, sociological, you know, educational, literary, that, you know, there these films also often address more than one um, concept with each so it we also see it as a starting point for something for a conversation that will that may go, go on for a few years um, whether it's within Melbourne Design Week or just within the Capitals program um, so yeah that that was that was the basis essentially a response to the theme that wasn't that um, took a step back from the more literal kind of design documentary approach Within that, what drew you to these particular films? You know, you, you've got a really eclectic mix. Um, was it more the aesthetics or, as you say, you know, some of those kinds of themes and stories that are coming through? 
out of all of those yeah Oh, this, this is Michelle here. Um, look, it's such, it was such a beautiful um, sort of set of parameters to work within, but as you can imagine, like huge. <laughs> we're talking, I guess we're sort of, you know, broadly talking about sci-fi films and this kind of thing. So Gita and I really looked back through like all of, you know, sci-fi since the beginning of cinema time. And um, it was quite a lot of work because it's, it was really something that also had to fit the theme. So, you know, we had to really go through all of these films and go, well, is this something that we could somehow link to today or some kind of future? And that was really interesting, actually making links back to particular films from as far back as 1927 with Metropolis and go, well, there are actual resonances for today. And, um, you know, even looking at something like Gattaca from 1997, um, seeing the resonant resonances, like Guido was saying, well, you know, there's sort of parallels with this idea of the, the vaccine passport and, you know, people carrying passports and getting access to certain um, qualities or, or pleasures in life that other people don't have, or looking at something like Fahrenheit 451 and, you know, anti-intellectualism that very, very present today. Um, so really it was, it was fascinating to sort of um, go through all these films and take them out of that context of, you know, great cinema works. Obviously, they are as well. And design, visual design, as Gita mentioned, is a very important part of um, what the program's about as well. But also just finding those resonances with today, especially pandemic or post-pandemic world. I think there is a really fascinating chicken and egg almost um, conundrum that these films put up, which is those resonances, I mean, some of them are thematic, but I, I also think of some of the way in which design particularly um, comes through into how we create um, the worlds around us and how much of that is inspired by some of these films, um, particularly some of the aesthetics and how much are we creating our, our present around what we've kind of seen in these films. Um, do you see, as you're kind of looking back through this history, do you kind of see... Um, the influences of those earlier films kind of coming through as well as you start to look into more recent um, cinema. Do you think we're we're con constantly repeating some of these images and ideas? It, as you said, it is a bit chicken and egg, and you know it would be a grand PhD or research project to see which actually did come first. You know, if you take something like Soylent Green, which without plot spoiling for anyone who hasn't seen it. Is, they've, they've had is, a little while to catch up on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, it's, it's addressing the end of food, essentially. Um, you know, with, without knowing what was going on in science and climate change back then, it, of course, you know, of course, all these realities were probably in a diluted way present back back in the in the past future when they when they when they were imagined but um as michelle said that you know this is exactly what drew us to these titles is this kind of rolling infinity sign of of like is it the past repeating itself or is it a future imagined have the has the present been dreamed up by a collective imagination born in the past I mean I think the answer is yes these realities were all present back when these films were originally made in some form because they were already being um, not discussed but evaluated you know something like Metropolis like that was being the, the realities or the proposed um, the proposed world of, of you know that was being proposed in 1927 there were shades of it then and then the what we're interested to see is like how glaring has that have those shades become now and it's some more than others so some we're kind of happy to say okay well we're not we're not there like we're not at soil and green yet right what I've done is co-program Soylent Green with a with a lecture from an RMIT um, specialist in biodesign and and kind of um, biofutures, and this is exactly what what his project and he's got an accompanying art exhibition is addressing is 
what are biodesign is doing to address the disintegration of topsoil because with the disintegration of topsoil soil essentially that's the end of food so yeah we're not there but we're pretty close like yeah and also these these are very human concerns I mean you look at a film like her mm. you know that could easily have just been set possibly with with a few plot points cut out in pandemic times, you know, people searching for love and finding it with a, a, a non-sentient, well, I guess she's not non-sentient, is she? She, she feels, but some kind of AI form. Um, <laughs> so we really, I think the, the beautiful thing about all these films is even though they might largely sort of be categorized uh, historically as sci-fi, like they're very humanist, you know, these are very humanist concerns, um, even things like Soylent Green and, and Silent Running, um, and I think that's what sort of brings it all back into a nice cohesive whole. Mm. And I think something that strikes me is even though, um, particularly in your curator statement, Gita, you, you talk about um, utopias and dystopias, and there are certainly some utopic visions of the future that come through in these films, but it always seems quite bittersweet to me that there's always even in the most optimistic visions of the future, there seems to be that sense of loss um, and I think this is fascinating thinking of these films in a design sense of in the way in which often the things that are most utopic are the, the ways in which um, the environments of these films have been controlled and um, the affordances that technology and um, all of these uh, developments tend to offer the lives. But then, as you were saying, Michelle, those very humanist elements that seem to be lacking as we move more and more into technological or controlled futures. Um, Gattaca always comes to mind when I think of this. It's such a, a visually stunning film. I mean, it's often quite empty, but um, we, we've almost achieved that level of design, um, modernist minimal, minimalism and uh, the clean edges and all of that space. But that's a perfect example of a, of a film that seems to lose that human element um, in all of that control. Mm. And for that film, it was, um, pun intended, by design. You know, they were designing out their humanity in in that film. And, um, you know, obviously aesthetics were were a consideration for us in, in the films that we chose. You know, this is a, a program that sits inside a design festival and in terms of designing the world you want, we obviously, um, when we're looking at a film, a, you know, a season of films where we want to be looking at great design on screen and great filmmaking as well. So from, you know, from a purely design aesthetic point of view, the, that was all considered in these films alongside the philosophical, you know, ethical considerations. And you said something when you, when you started asking this question about, um, oh yeah the bittersweet comment and I was just thinking as you were talking but yes that is the romance of cinema because most cinema is I think sentimental by its very nature or has an element of sentimentality and you know if we look at something like her which you know you could look at that as a dystopia or a utopia depending on your mood opinion, frame of mind, relationship status. Um, and, you know, the reality of her is is very close. You know, and again, with Gattaca, of course, there's a lot, you know, that's much more dystopian in its, in its outlook, but also, you know, it presented a world where, you know, your dreams could be designed by your genetic code if you happen to struck the right, struck, you know, strike the right genetic code so I agree with you there's an element of bittersweetness some more in others but um, there's a sense of possibility in a lot of these films and a sense of dreaming and imagining that I think is still possible for us yeah and I think I mean this is a topic that Gita and I are very interested in as she mentioned we'd love to do more on in the future I I feel like there's been a return to utopian filmmaking. Um, I mean, we saw dystopian filmmaking sort of in a, a lot 
in the 90s when Gattaca was released, um, there's a lot of those big budget blockbusters that really imagine like very dire futures. Um, but I, I think that was more to do with special effects. Maybe you can't make a nice big budget expensive special effects film just imagining something kind of nice. <laughs> but those days are long gone. <laughs> that was a different period for Hollywood. And so I think, yeah, I think this this idea of utopia and imagined futures and designed futures um, is so pertinent to now and what we're seeing also with contemporary filmmaking and what we'll continue to see in, in the, the coming decades. You know, I think sort of Hollywood is basically, you know, it's pretty much been destroyed. Um, a lot of that level filmmaking sort of done in computers now. And it's like, so how are we designing our ideas in cinema? And I think that's something, again, yeah, we'd like to sort of look at in the future with our programming because it's such a rich, interesting field. And, and like you just said, it, these films can be like, even something like Metropolis could be utopian or dystopian, depending sort of where you sit politically as well. Um, so they're just so rich for the imagination and um, yeah, so brilliant to see them on the big screen in the capital. You know, we're always visualizing them in the capital. So we're so happy it can happen. Well, for those listeners who are lucky enough to be in Melbourne, you can go and see it up on the big screen. The program kicks off on March 26th and you can find out all of the program details up on thecapital.tv. Thanks so much, Michelle and Gita. It's been so great talking to you about this program. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Each episode, we feature an audio postcard from writers, filmmakers or curators across the globe. This week, our postcard is from Masha Peche, curator of the Retrosex film event in Ljubljana, Slovenia. Hello from Ljubljana, Slovenia, and the program Kino Sloga Retrosex, a night of erotic cinema. Uh, Retrosex is a specialty retrospective program that I've been curating at Ljubljana's main art house and city cinema Kino Dvor since 2014. Um, the event takes place each year on or around Valentine's Day, and that is a relatively recent and imported custom in Slovenia, so with a bit of tongue-in-cheek, we take advantage of it and, as we say, we try to make it a little bit more inclusive, catering not only to couples but also to singles and groups. The purpose of the program is to showcase this wild and really diverse and bountiful history of cinematic erotica. So we try to include everything uh, from more canonic art house films to experimental avant-garde films, early silent stag movies, nudist, naturist films, sexploitation, and then softcore and hardcore porn, of course, from a time when such films were made for and seen on the big screen. We show these films usually every year at Retro 6 on 35mm prints, of course, when cinemas are open and there is not a pandemic raging across the globe. But first and foremost, Retro 6 program is an homage to this specific cinema, to Kino Dvor and its rather amazing history. So Kino Dvor Cinema is the longest running movie theater in Slovenia, established in 1923 as the first cinema palace in Ljubljana. So it will soon celebrate its centenary and we launched this uh, program, Retro 6, um, in the season 2013-14, when the cinema celebrated its 90 years of existence. So it went initially from a cinema palace to today being the main and liveliest city cinema in Ljubljana. But it went through very, very different periods. And um, in the 70s and 80s, Kino Dvor was an erotic cinema. Now, this is the time of socialist Yugoslavia and the cinema in that period called Kino Sloga, which means in the very good socialist tradition, cinema solidarity, was a state-owned cinema. So we're talking a socialist state-run porn cinema. This is such a unique phenomenon, we simply must celebrate and remember it. So this year, due to lockdown and cinemas in Slovenia having been closed since mid-October, we organized an online edition to keep this event alive. Instead of 35mm prints, we were now looking for content which could be streamed online. And uh, 
two key players in this more specialty genre-oriented field uh, kindly came to our help. From the far east, the prominent Japanese studio Nikatsu, and from the far west, so to speak, the American Genre Film Archive from Austin, Texas. From Nikatsu and its infamous Roman porno series, we presented Noboru Tanaka's 1976 film Watcher in the Attic, based on the works of the famous Japanese mystery writer Edogawa Rampo. As our second film, um, we included, and we do that, uh, we try to do that every year, we included a film that actually played at Kinosloga back in its erotic heyday. So for this year, that was the 1980 American hardcore porn film or porn comedy, even Champagne for Breakfast, directed by Chris Warfield. And then for our third title and our late night extravaganza, we had the queen of American sexploitation, Doris Wishman, and her really brilliantly bonkers sci-fi nudist film, the 1961 Nude on the Moon. We really had no idea what to expect this year in terms of both the audience reaction and attendance. And in the end, the online program was a very big success. But we do hope and we look forward to immensely to return to the physical space of cinema and to Kino Dvor's rather sexy red hall as soon as possible. So that's it from us. Thanks so much for having us. Good luck, everyone. Stay safe, stay sane, and see you at the cinema. As usual, each month your hosts share with you a highlight of something we've watched over the last month. Whether it's a film, television show, or some other kind of screen media that's caught our attention, we share with you material that's resonated with us so you can hear about it and perhaps watch it as well. We've each seen a lot over the past month, so Lexi, what are your recommendations for April? Thanks, Joymi. Um, like a lot of other people in the world, um, because we're unable to travel at the moment, I've been watching films set in places I'd like to be in. Um, one of those places for me is Greece, so I've been watching a lot of films uh, set in Greece. And one film that I revisited in this context um, is the 1957 film Boy on a Dolphin, um, which is by Jean Negulesco, and it stars Sophia Loren, Alan Ladd, and Clifton Webb. Um, it's this uh, kind of it's a film that I hadn't thought much about before I'd seen, but I hadn't thought much about. Um, Sophia Loren plays a sponge diver um, in Idra or Hydra. Um, and there's this kind of this sort of statue at the bottom of the ocean. Um, so it's sort of a bit silly in some ways. Um, but it was her English language debut. Um, and it was actually the first Hollywood film to be shot in Greece, I believe. And it's shot in Cinemascope um, and uses deluxe colour. So in terms of its kind of uh, representation of that that place and um, it, it's quite site specific in how it uses um, certain places in Athens um, and in Idra. It's sort of kind of glorious and it's sort of I felt just what I needed at this at this time not being able to sort of get home if that makes sense. Um, what about you? Uh, so in the spirit of the past futures retrospective I'm going to recommend people go back to a lo-fi science fiction film from 2010 called Never Let Me Go directed by Rak Romanek and it was adapted from the 2005 Kazuo Ishiguro novel of the same name. The film's set in a sort of an alternate version of the recent past where the average life expectancy is now over 100. Um, and if you haven't read the book, I'm not going to give away how they achieve that additional life expectancy because I think this is a film that I really recommend people go into relatively cold without too much foreknowledge. Uh, despite a really healthy critical reception, the film didn't go well at the box office. So uh, in that respect, not so many people have seen it. So if you like philosophical contemplative science fiction with some lovely little aesthetic touches that are a homage to Yasujiro Uzu, do chase it down. What about you, Kirsten? Well, I'm going uh, far more anarchic, I think, than either of your suggestions uh, with a film that I saw recently at the Fantastic Film Festival Australia. And this is a film starring Nicolas Cage called Willy's Wonderland. And... It's just a wonderfully crazy film. 
Uh, Nicolas Cage is a star as a drifter who gets caught in a small town's um, pact with the devil almost. Um, after his car is disabled, he's forced to clean the uh, Willy's Wonderland amusement park, uh, which, as we find out as we go through the film, uh, is populated by demonic creatures that are basically anyone who's sent in to clean the place doesn't make it out alive until Cage, of course. And it's just a wonderfully absurd film. Cage doesn't say a single line of dialogue in the entire film, um, but he does play a lot of pinball and just shows an enthusiasm for pinball and the kind of uh, pinball-esque music that comes out of the machine. Um, mixed in with just wonderful scenes of absurdist violence against uh, almost sort of uh, Jim Henson-style puppet animatronic uh, creatures that populate willies. So I believe this is uh, streaming soon, if not already uh, internationally on Amazon Prime and a few other places. I'm not sure when it's coming to streaming in Australia, but it's when you get a chance to have a look at it, it's just a wonderfully absurd film. That sounds pretty wonderful, i got to say. The Senses of Cinema podcast is recorded in Melbourne. Production and technical assistance by Georgia Imfeld and intro theme by Asher Pope. Thanks to all our guests and contributors for this week. We'll be back with another episode in a few weeks' time.